The journey of Christian maturity involves an intentional life that is an ordered and collaborative effort with God. Join us for a fall series, Formed, The Reshaping of a Life. Good morning, Woodland Hills. And hello, Padrishners. Uh, good to have you all here and worshiping together and tuning in to hear a little bit from God's Word. Uh, before I start, I, I just think it would be appropriate to, uh, for us to just pray. For, uh, we live in kind of a scary world right now, don't we? And the events of this last week, it's, uh, oh, it's just tragic. That bombing, the bombings that took place in, in France. Uh, it's times like this where you've just got to remind yourself that you, we serve a God who is Lord of the whole world, King of all kings, Lord of all lords. And, um, and he's stirring this thing. He hates this stuff, uh, but he's bigger than that stuff. And um, we're to use our authority as kingdom people uh, on behalf of those who are hurting. And so just join me in praying for the people of France right now and others affected by this recent atrocity. Father, we look to you as the sovereign Lord of all creation, and we're so thankful that uh, our confidence is in you. It's not in any political system, in, in any military, any state of the nations. Uh, our eyes are fixed upon you, and you have promised that you give perfect peace to those whose eyes are fixed upon you. Uh, thank you, Lord, for that. Help us to stay centered on you and to not be living out of fear um, or anything of the sort. And Father, we, we intercede on behalf of the hurting people of France and others who are affected by this terrible terrorist attack. Uh, Lord, will you just bring comfort there as, in a way that only you can to those who are hurting in magnificent ways. Um, and Lord, we, we pray for peace over there, uh, whatever that means, uh, however that looks. We just pray that you be working to peace, towards peace, and to uh, curb, minimize, and eventually eradicate all violence. Um, Father, we pray that, that you'll protect our hearts and others' hearts from, from allowing this event to begin to cause them to stereotype people and to be operating out of fear. We pray for innocent Muslims who could be, uh, receive a negative backlash from all of this. And help us, Lord, to be centered in you, anchored in you, and be ambassadors of peace in this world that is so full of violence and can be so scary. Use us, Lord, to further your peace. Help us to be peacemakers in Jesus' name. And all God's peacemakers said, amen, 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 amen. Keep your eyes fixed on him. Well, we've been talking these days about spiritual formation. And what I want to do this morning is talk about the ways in which God can use life. Life happens. And God can, if we will cooperate with him, use all the experiences of our life to shape us, to form us into the image of Christ, and to equip us to be uh, more effective uh, ministers and missionaries uh, where we find ourselves. If, we're, if our eyes are looking for it, if we're cooperating with him, all the experiences of life, including and especially the negative stuff, uh, becomes material for him to use us and to shape us and grow us. The key verse on this, and we're going to start off right out of the gate here getting a little bit geeky, so just put your thinking caps on. But the key verse that really uh, anchors this truth is Romans 8.28. And here Paul says that we know, you better know this, this is important stuff to know, we know that in everything, in everything, God works. The word there is sunergeo. I'll talk about that word in a, mo in a moment. He works for good with those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. 
In everything, God is working. Know that. There is not anything in which God is not present working for the good, uh, for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. Now, here's the little geek thing. There are a number of translations that translate this passage a little bit differently. So, for example, the New Living Translation says this. What are those geese up there for? I don't like those geese. Get out. Geese, you're blocking my scripture. It's only on one side. I rebuke the geese. Geese get gone. All right. I look over here. <laughs> That's really strange. That is really, that is really a bizarre event. It's, it's very odd. Very odd. Um, here, here's what the uh, NLT says. The goose version. Uh, God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. It's a little bit different. God causes everything. Uh, this translation and translations like this can give the impression, and sometimes it's explicitly taught, that God causes everything. Kind of what it's saying there. Whatever happens, God caused it. So that means that if your child died, leukemia or cancer or some accident, uh, God caused that. If uh, you experience a rape, well, God was causing that. Uh, if your husband walks out on you, uh, God caused that. If a tornado destroys all your possessions, well, God caused that. Uh, you know, if your dog runs away and your cat dies, God caused that. Your life turns into a country western song. Well, God's causing all that. And he's doing it, in, in this view, for your own good. And sometimes people try to speculate about what that good is. Maybe, maybe the reason why uh, your, your child died was because, uh, well, God's trying to teach you a lesson. And maybe the reason why you experienced that rape is so that, well, then you, you can be more empathetic towards, towards uh, other women who go through hardships. And maybe the reason why you lost all your possessions was because God saw that you were, you were, you were clinging to them too much. He wants you to be more dependent on him. And maybe the reason why your husband walked out on you is because God wants you to draw closer to your heavenly husband or things like that. And Christians say things like this a lot. I'm not caricaturing this. I've spent a good part of my ministry bandaging up the wounds of people who've been afflicted with this, this sort of thinking. Whatever happens, God's causing it, and it's for your own good. Um, I don't want to shock you, but I don't agree with that, 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 that opinion. Um, here's the thing, and the most fundamental thing, is that the picture of God causing everything just doesn't agree with the portrait of God that we're given in Jesus Christ. And... and uh, uh, all of our thinking about God, as I always say around here, all of our thinking about God has got to be anchored in Jesus Christ. Amen? Uh, Jesus didn't go around causing people to be afflicted. He rather went around and he delivered people from their afflictions. And for all the, the people that Jesus ministered to, never once does he suggest that their afflictions, their hardships, their tragedies were reflective of God's will. Never once does he do that. He rather comes against those things as reflecting the will of the devil. And he, he manifests what God's will is by healing people and freeing people from their bondages. That's, that's what God's like. He's on the side of the healing. He's on the side of, of the good and, and freeing people. That's why it says in, in Acts 10 that uh, Jesus, Peter says this as he's in his sermon, Jesus, or God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good, doing good. He's always on the side of good, not afflicting people with nasty stuff doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. The affliction that they were healed from was, was a, a reflection of the oppression of the devil. And, and see, the folks that attribute everything to God, they're sincere, they mean well, they're just doing what they, saying what they believe, but when you attribute the nasty stuff of the world to, to, to God, you're really confusing God with the devil, which is no small little mistake. 
And that's why when people are sometimes asked to believe in this God who causes rapes and children to be killed and whatever, uh, a lot of folks will say, no, thank you. Uh, you know, I'm supposed to put my trust in that kind of a deity? Uh, they'll say, no, thank you. I think that that understanding is, is fundamentally misguided. Um, the translation that says that God causes everything is grammatically possible. I have to grant that. It's grammatically possible. But I don't think it is, it's certainly not a necessary translation, and it's not, I don't think, the best translation. The crucial word here is that word sooner, sooner gale. Uh, it comes from the, the prefix soon, which means together or alongside of or with. And then ergos, which means energy. Uh, we, we get the word energy from it. In fact, we get the word synergy from soon ergeo, synergy. It means energy alongside of or working alongside of. It implies that there's more than one party at work here. It, see, if God was causing everything, then his ergos, his energy, would be the only energy that is determining things. He'd be doing all the work. He's causing everything. And so he wouldn't have any need to work alongside of another. In fact, there'd be no space for working alongside of another because everything's being determined by his ergos. They, that translation kind of takes the soon out of soon ergos, right? So this passage is implying that God is at work to, alongside of us, working with us to bring good out of the circumstances we're in. And see, that's why Paul specifies that he does this to those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. It's just, it's, he's not up there saying, I'm not going to work with people who, who, who uh, are, aren't accepting the call and, and you know, aren't, aren't putting the trust in Jesus. He's not, no, he would love to do this with everybody, right? He loves everybody, would love to be working in their lives, but see, it's only those who have accepted the call and have placed their trust in, in Christ that are looking for this, that, that are, are aware that God is present in their circumstances and that are willing to cooperate with him. And so that's why Paul specifies it, that for all those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose, God is at work in everything to bring good out of evil. Now, why do translations then translate it as, as God causes all things? Uh, I suspect, this is my suspicion here, that it has to do with a widespread theological bias that's been present in the church going back to the 5th century. Thank you, St. Augustine. And the bias is that Power means control. Power means control. So if God is all-powerful, God must be all-controlling. That's the theological assumption. And so if, if you attribute anything, folks who hold this view, they can't stand it when people talk about humans contributing anything to what God is doing or, or, or cooperating with what God is doing because they think that's robbing God of his power, robbing God of his sovereignty. You're exalting humanity to the place of God. I hear that quite a bit. They're assuming that God's power is the power to control. If God's all-powerful, he must be controlling everything, so God causes everything for the good. But see, uh, that kind of power, well, that's the kind of power humans have always lusted after, and that's the kind of power humans have always attributed to God, or the gods. Uh, that's not the kind of power that, that God has as it's revealed in Christ. Jesus reveals a, a very different kind of power, the power of God. Uh, look at this. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, I love this passage. To those who are perishing, the message of the cross is foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The cross is the power of God. Now, to the natural mind, you look at this crucified guy up on Golgotha, and nothing could look less powerful than that. What is, who's got less power than the guy who just got crucified? That's to the natural thinking. But to those who understand what is going on in that cross and how it's, it's by means of that cross that God 
overcomes the kingdom of darkness and ultimately redeems the world. That is the power of God. So Paul is saying that when God displays his power, when God flexes his omnipotent bicep, it doesn't look like Allah, uh, you know, bringing disasters on people. That's a view that you get in Islam and in the Quran. But it, that's not the power that's revealed in Christ. No, the power that's revealed in Christ is the, the power that's reflected when, when God himself becomes a human, goes to the cross, uh, uh, goes to Calvary, and takes, uh, bears the human sin upon himself. It's the power of self-sacrificial love. It's the power of, of God being crucified out of love for the very people who are crucifying him. And if we're thinking along the lines of what Jesus reveals, that's the kind of power that God uses in this world. It's not the power of coercion, the power of control. It's the power of self-sacrificial love. Uh, it, it, everything, this kind of power is actually the opposite, the opposite of control power. Because the power of self-sacrificial love is a relational power. It, it's a power that respects the personhood of the other. It's a power that works with people, in people, through people, but doesn't lobotomize people, doesn't control people. It's the power of soon ergeo. And so if we read Romans 8, with that understanding of power, rather than projecting the kind of power that we always want, Rather than projecting that onto this passage, if we had let Jesus reveal to us what God's power is really like, now we read Romans 8, 28, well, it becomes very clear that Paul is not saying that God causes everything. Uh, no, he's saying that in everything, whatever comes about, even if God hates it, even if he despises it, uh, he'll, he will be in it, working for our good. This is the God that's revealed in Christ, the God who, who dove into our humanity, Right? And on the cross, he dove into our hell. Well, what Paul is saying is God is always doing that. What he does on Calvary, he's always doing. He incarnates himself. He, he embodies himself in our sin, in our messes, in all the crap that the world has to dish out. Whatever, whatever it is, however it comes about, whoever did it, however much God hates it, God is not above getting his hands dirty and getting involved in it. And so in everything, whatever it is, however ugly it is, however terrible it is, You've got to know that God is there, right in the middle of it. And he's there in the presence of his love. And if we'll work with him, because he does not depersonalize us, if we'll work with him, his promise is that in everything, he can bring good out of it, a good purpose. And the purpose there is to help shape us and form us, and the purpose there is to further his kingdom. That's what Romans 8.28 is all about. It's a beautiful, beautiful proclamation that we have to hang on to in all circumstances. Now, what I want to do now is, is, is uh, just kind of show what this might look like. It will look a little different for every person because everyone's circumstance is different. So you have to apply it, you know, seek God's guidance on how, how to apply it. But it will help to kind of get a picture of how this can operate. Uh, the first thing I want to uh, illustrate is the way that God can use difficult people in our life uh, to further his good. And this should be relevant because I think most of us have got some difficult people in our life. Am I right? Yeah, anyone that is, hopefully they're not, not the ones sitting next to you, but uh, most of us have some difficult people. If, if you just said amen and your wife's looking at you right now, you tighten the backpedal. I wasn't referring to you, honey. No, difficult people. Uh, back in, I think it was 2002 or 2003, when we did this love series, that series that never, it would never end. It kept on going on and on and on. Uh, but uh, after about a year of that, towards the end of it, a lady approached me after a service. I'll call her Sue. Um, and Sue had this sister, as she put it, who the sister lived to make her miserable. Uh, some siblings grow up and they're best friends, and other siblings, for whatever reason, grow up and they're not so much best friends. They can be worst enemies. And that's the kind of situation Sue was in, right? 
her, her older sister, she said, was, would just talk nasty about her. Um, but behind her back, she would talk nasty to her, use harsh language. Uh, was very critical of her and her family. Everything they did was wrong. Uh, was accusatory. Sometimes would attribute nasty motives uh, to things that, that Sue would do. Just, she was a nasty, just nasty towards her, all right? Uh, and then when, when, when we were speaking, she uh, informed me that uh, about a year and a half earlier, her father, who was her last parent, died. And Sue decided to contest the will um, and held it up in court. And when we were talking, it was still held up in court. Uh, and the thing is, is that that was right on the time where her husband had lost his job, and now her older son was going to have to drop out of college, and um, the family could really use this money, and Sue was keeping the whole thing tied up in court. So it was a nasty, nasty situation. Now, Sue it was in her 50s, and she said all of her life, all of her life, uh, she had reciprocated that nastiness. Uh, her and her sister were on kind of a tit-for-tat, hate-merry-go-round, you know, you insult me, I'll insult you worse. You strike at me, I'll strike you back worse. And it, it had just been going on their whole life. Their whole life. Kind of a microcosm of the world, if you think about it. Um, but what was happening with Sue, though, was during this series, this love series, um, something began to change. She, she began to wake up to just how stupid that is. She began to wake up to the ways in which she's empowering her older sister to significantly, adversely affect the quality of her life. She's empowering her to do that. And she began to wake up to just how much time and energy, how much of her life has been wasted in negative emotions towards her sister. How much time and energy has been wasted hating her sister. And during this series, she began to hear the message. I mean, really hear it for the first time. That we're called to love our enemies and to bless our enemies. And she began to hear the message, really hear it, that we're called to set aside all judgments and uh, to instead just agree with God that every person that we have in our life has got unsurpassable worth. And though it was difficult for her, she began to apply this stuff. That's the hard part. I mean, learning is one thing, but actually applying it to your particular circumstances, well, that, that gets tough. But, but she, she got earnest with this. So whenever she would find herself falling into the old habits of thought, where she'd be thinking nasty thoughts about her sister. She would stop herself, set that aside, and just start to bless her. Agree with God that she has unsurpassable worth, and just bless her. And though it was hard for her to do it, first she began to pray for her sister. Because Jesus tells us to pray for our enemies, right? And so uh, she began to pray for her. And as always happens, if you persevere in that, it's hard at first. I've had to do this. It's, it's really hard at first, because you got all this negative emotion. So you start by kind of like, oh, God bless them. <laughs> but if you persist in this, um, well, you'll find it starts to soften your heart towards that other person. and begins to open up your, your, your heart and your mind towards them. You begin to see things that you didn't otherwise see. Um, and so she, she persists in this. And then when they had to get together, as families sometimes do, like around Christmas, um, and so some of you might have to listen up on this point because you're going to be in a Christmas situation like this. Now you have to have face-to-face -face encounters. So she, would, she, prayed, she really got prayed up before she went. Uh, and, and, and when they were together, she tried to keep this blessing mindset. And when her sister would, would speak accusatory words to her, harsh words, critical words of her, or whatnot, uh, she would, relying on the power of the Spirit, would not return evil with evil. 
At least she really worked at that. She said she wasn't 100% successful, but she would try not to get sucked into it, returning evil with evil, but rather, as Scripture tells us, to return evil with good. So she tried to return the harsh word with a, with a kind word and just tried to shower love on her. Um, and then she said that what she found was that this was moving her towards compassion. Whereas before, she had always seen her sister through a grid of her own self-defense. That's why you get in this tit-for-tat thing. You've got you to get even. You've got to prove yourself. You know? So she always saw her sister through that grid. So she really didn't even see her sister. What she saw was a problem. What she saw was a source of pain. But now that she crucified that old self and crucified that, that self-defense mechanism and was living in, in this intentional, loving, blessing zone, well, she began to see things she hadn't seen before. Um, she was freed from that. Uh, she began to see that there's, it gives you wisdom to see beyond the surface of a person. Now she could see her, her, her sister, her older sister, as a human being, someone made in the image of God, someone who actually has unsurpassable worth. And when you can begin to see that in a person, it gives you a wisdom that you otherwise wouldn't have. Uh, she began to see that there's a cause, there's a reason for her, her sister's orneriness. On some level, she knew this, I think, all of her life, but now it gets highlighted. When, when she would pray for her, she would all of a sudden see, or she would remember very vividly that her and her sister have always been in competition, or really, her older sister has always been in competition with her. Um, her older sister always felt like she never measured up. Uh, Sue was born with a pleasant personality. Some people just are. Others of us are born a little rougher on the edges. Uh, more, you know, we, we have a more rebellious kind of nature. And so because of that, uh, Sue felt, or Sue's older sister felt that Sue was the favorite of her parents. Uh, Sue was the goody-two-shoe girl. Sue never does anything wrong. Sue gets all the better grades. Sue's the better Christian. They, they were raised in a strict Lutheran family. And, and so you know, Sue is always the one who's in the limelight, and her sister's always the one that's kind of the negative. And then there's this older sister. So she never measures up. And Sue remembered then in prayer, it was brought to her that uh, all this had increased, had intensified significantly around 20 years ago. And that was when her older sister's husband walked out on her, left her for another woman, left her and her son for another woman. And now she understood what was going on. That, see, that was yet another contest that she lost. Sue had a pretty stable family and stable kids and stable marriage. But her older sister couldn't even hang on to a husband. That's how her sister framed it. And so Sue began to understand that all that animosity, all that orneriness was really a cry of pain. Uh, her sister lived in this world of shame and indictment and inferiority, a world of pain. And her orneriness, well, not excusable, but, but it, everyone's got a prequel. And it really comes out of this world of pain that she's in. And so Sue's heart began to break for her sister. The judgments were replaced by compassion. Um, when we talked, Sue hadn't yet reconciled with her sister, uh, hadn't yet told her what the changes that she's been going through. In fact, that's why she was coming up after the service to talk to me. She wanted some advice about that. But she told me that already she can't believe the transformation that was happening in her life. See, only now was she really beginning to cooperate with God. I think God, all of her life, had been present there trying to move her in a direction of, of, of love and blessing and forgiveness. Uh, but only now is she ready to hear it. And, and so she could hear the message and begin to apply it. And uh, now it was bringing about a beautiful transformation. She, she told me, she, she said, I cannot believe, I, I'd always heard about this, but I really never knew experientially what it was about, about my identity in Christ and how empowered I am in Christ and how I can do all things through Christ. I, I, I'm experiencing that. And she talked about the, the, the incredible, 
incredible joy and freedom that she experienced when she could get off of that nauseating merry-go-round, that hate-filled, tit-for-tat merry-go-round. It, it gives you joy and freedom to get off of that. And she, she shared about the joy and freedom she experienced, not being lorded over by negative emotions. You know, just being under the tyranny of that hatred. It gives joy and freedom. She talked about the joy and freedom that she experienced. When, when she could respond to animosity with love, she said, it's, 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 I never dreamed that that was even possible. But it just fills you with joy. And I don't know if you know experientially what she's talking about, but it's true. It's true. When, when you've gotten to the place where you can respond to animosity with genuine love uh, and compassion, it, it gives you a sense of joy and freedom. It's like... You're free not to get sucked under the undertow. You're free to get off that merry-go-round. You're free not to be ruled over by these negative emotions. It's so empowering. I shared six weeks ago, I think it was, about that guy who was drunk and thought that I tried to cut off his drunk wife while they were riding bikes. And so in his drunken state, he, I got out of my car shortly after that, and he was following me, and he grabbed me by the collar and was ready to punch me and all that. And I shared with him, that uh, I, you can hit me if you want, but I can't fight back because I'm not allowed to because I'm a follower of Jesus. Um, well, there was, I will admit, a little fear going on there. My heart was racing. I thought my face was going to get rearranged. You know, that's not a pleasant idea. Um, but there was underneath it, uh, even in the event and then lingering afterwards, a sense of joy that, I, that I don't, I, I'm not going to bite the bait on this. I'm free not to bite the bait on this. And it's a sense of freedom. I'm free from the, that, that, that self-defensive mechanism that sucks you in and, and it gets you in that quid pro quo mindset. You hit me, I'll hit you back. And, and just to be above that is so free and it gives you joy. And that's what, what Sue was experiencing. Um, she said to me that in, in light of the freedom and the joy that she's experienced in her identity in Christ and the empowerment she feels, she says, I'm almost thankful I've got a, a, an ornery sister. I'm almost thankful for it. I don't think I, I could have experienced this any other way. It almost feels like my sister is a gift to me. Uh, this isn't the kind of transformation that you can get by reading a book or going to a conference. Uh, no, it, it's life experiences. That's why God uses life experiences to teach us. They're powerful if we'll cooperate with them. I, I, she's thankful for it. But no, she had to cooperate with God. She could have said no. She could have hung on to that bitterness and that anger. She could have stayed on that merry-go-round. And there's a deceptive lie that the enemy spread throughout the world that somehow you're empowered by staying on that merry-go-round. It feels powerful when you can get even, powerful when you can get back, powerful when you can make them pay. When in fact, it disempowers you because you've just made the other person lord of your life. They get to define uh, the quality of your life. They get to suck life out of you, but the enemy gets you to think that they're actually, you're getting life by hanging on to this. No, she had a choice to make. She had to die to her old self. She had to die to that old mindset. She had to let that go. But when she did... What seemed like a curse, what felt like a curse, a lifelong curse, began to feel like a gift. God is so smart, he can do that. In fact, he's so good at this. This is one of the reasons why I think people assume that he must be causing everything. Because they can't figure out how, how he could have such a great plan to bring good out of evil unless he was causing the evil. But no, see, he doesn't cause the evil. He didn't make Sue's sister nasty. She just is nasty. But since he's going to be nasty, God's going to dive into that. He's the incarnational God. And he'll dive into that, and he'll be at work in all things to bring good out of that. If we'll look for him, if we'll find him in the midst of this, and then cooperate with him. So the question to ask yourself is, do you have a difficult person in your life? And maybe you already worked through this, but maybe you haven't. Um, and, and don't ask if God, don't wonder if God is present in this situation. God is. Know that God is. And now the only question is, how is he present? 
What is he doing? What good does he want to bring God to this? And will you cooperate with him? Will you cooperate with him? It will always start by, by submitting to Christ and to uh, sub- co- committing yourself to love and bless your enemy and to pray for your enemy and to uh, collapse judgment mechanisms and to agree with God that they have unsurpassable worth. That's a starting point. But how it applies to your particular difficult relationship, well, follow God's leading on that. But know that God is present in everything, even in the lives of difficult people. Sometimes you're in situations where you th- think, this is nothing but pure devil. Well, you're wrong. Wherever the devil does, God is. Uh, Whatever the enemy intends for evil, God always intends for good. Praise God. Okay, the second illustration I want to give is, is, is uh, uh, it really shows how God can bring good even out of our own failures. Even our own screw-ups. Our, when we do stupid, God does smart. Uh, and and, and he, there, there's a bumper sticker for When we do stupid, God does smart. And, and he's able to turn it to our advantage and to, to the advantage of the kingdom. Uh, some of you know, because I've shared this before, that um, the early years of my marriage with Shelly were difficult. And it's surprising because we have a perfect marriage now. But, uh, but when we started, it's just, it's not that funny. <laughs> you're acting like that was the greatest sarcasm in the world. <laughs> no, it's a marriage. You don't need to say anything more than that. Um, perfect marriage, I think, is an oxymoron. You know, so, um, even if Jesus got married, which he didn't, but if he would have gotten married, there would have been problems. Not because of him, but you know, the, the person wouldn't have been, unless we... Unless she was the daughter of God. Well, that gets complicated. <laughs> Let's move on, okay, shall we? <laughs> but I want to share this again because it, 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 it really illustrates graphically this, this point. So Shelly and I get married. I'm 22. She's 21. We didn't know much of anything. Um, I am the quintessential egghead geek type. I love to just live in the world of ideas and think through issues and, and try to resolve intellectual problems. I love to research and read and all of that. That's my, the world I live in. Shelly, not so much. Uh, Shelly is, is, is crazy smart when it comes to practical stuff. She amazes me. Uh, you know, she can think of how to fix stuff and, and all this. I, she, it just blows me away when it comes to practical stuff, which is really kind of cool because I am completely brain dead when it comes to practical stuff. Uh, it, it just, Heidegger's no problem. Fixing a sink is rough, forget it. So, so it, we're, we're, we're very different like this. So we get married and we move out to Yale, which is Eggheadville. I mean, every, it's, it's Eggheadville on steroids and everyone there is an egghead on steroids. And, and Shelly doesn't do eggheads, so she's feeling intimidated. And that's an intimidating environment. And the first question these people ask at a dinner party or something is, oh, where'd you get your degree from? Well, what if you didn't get a degree? You know, it, it, it's, a, it's, it, it's, all, it's all like that, a little snooty. So she's in this environment. Um, I, I, on top of that, I found that when I would try to share, like, my ideas, you know, I'm working through stuff, and when I try to share it, um, sometimes she would feel intimidated by that. She would get insecure about that because she sometimes would have trouble following it. Um, and, and, in fact, sometimes she would, several times she said, oh, I bet you miss, wish she would have married one of those Yale girls, which is so not true. I dated a couple academics, and while they're fun to debate, wouldn't want to marry them. But... Uh, but she's feeling insecure about that. Plus, she's an extrovert, loves to be around people, doesn't like to be alone for very, for very long. I'm the opposite. Um, I love people, but in limited doses. So I, 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 I like to have a lot of time. And, you know, so in her world, she, can't, she couldn't even fathom how anyone could be alone in a room for 12 to 15 hours at a time with a book and be happy. How is that possible? And so in her world, she starts to interpret that as that maybe I'm trying to avoid her. And she begins to feel in competition with the books, that like maybe I love my books more than I love her. It got to the point where I began to feel guilty when I would be reading around her, because uh, she would get depressed and stuff, and depressed when I'd talk about ideas. And, 
And, and so I made a faithful decision to check that all out of the marriage, to hide it all. I would actually have to hide to, to you know, read. And that totally fit a childhood pattern of mine because growing up, I had a stepmother who didn't think kids should play, so if she ever crossed playing, she'd find us work to do. So we always had to hide. If you enjoyed it, you had to hide it. And so it was instinctive for me. If I'm enjoy, I enjoy this, so of course I have to hide it. And so I checked that out of the marriage. And the sad thing is that, the tragic thing is that in checking that out of the marriage, you're checking the core of me out of the marriage. That's the world I live in. So you just checked my world out of the marriage. And I meant well, but it was so stupid. On top of that, Shelly is very environmentally sensitive. She's affected by her environment, and so she likes to work with the environment. Um, and she, she loves to, to, to decorate, design, to make a living space. You know, take a, take a dumpy dorm room, which is what we were living in, and turn it into a nice living space. And she likes to process all those kind of ideas about curtains and, and all that kind of stuff. You know, that stuff. I, I don't think there's a person on the planet who is more environmentally unaware than I am. I, I, I am just, I'm too much into my head to notice the, what's going on in my environment. Uh, I'm not affected by in my environment at all. I, I'm affected by what's going on in my head. If ideas aren't lining up, I'm depressed. Otherwise, I, I don't care what's going on in my environment. It doesn't affect me. So Shelly could, like, I'm not exaggerating. She could paint a room a totally different color, and I wouldn't notice it. Or she'd hang up some new pictures. I wouldn't notice it. Uh, she changed the bedspread or rearranged the furniture. I wouldn't notice it. One time she bought this cheap chandelier for this house we moved into, uh, and, and, and it hung too low from the ceiling, and she wanted to know if I would notice that. Well, I bumped my head into that stupid chandelier three times in the course of three days and still didn't notice that we had a new chandelier. So that shows you how gone I am, all right? Uh, yeah, so, so, so Shelly knows then that I, I'm not really interested in environment things and decorating, design, fixing up, whatever. I don't like to do those things. She would love to have a partner in doing this. In fact, that was one of her dreams for a marriage, to have a partner where you do these things together. And it made sense because a lot of the things she does is the stuff that the guy's supposed to do. And she had a dad who was really good at all that kind of stuff. I never had that role modeled for me, and I never have done that stuff. And I don't like to do that stuff. I'd always rather be reading. And so she sees that, she knows that, and though it breaks her heart, she checks that part of her out of the marriage. So the core of who, and, and that's a core part of who she is, so the core of her is out of the marriage, and the core of me is out of the marriage. And we go on 16 years like this. Um, now, we, we loved each other, and, and it wasn't all bad. In fact, we had a lot of good times. Um, we raised three kids. Uh, we got involved in ministry. We stayed very, very busy, you know, running the kids around and whatever. Um, on, on the surface, it looked like a, a, a good marriage, a solid marriage. But it lacked something. And what it lacked was our center's meeting. Uh, there was a void here. And the void grew as time went on, especially as the kids got older. As kids get older, you start to think about what life will be like without the kids. And that void starts to become huge. What are we going to talk about? Uh, and, and it got to the point about 20 years ago, 16 years into the marriage, where we couldn't ignore it any longer. And we named the elephant in the room. And that was the beginning of hell. I went through six months of pure, undiluted hell. It was, uh, we opened up a Pandora's box. We, we finally spoke truth to each other, but the truth was really ugly. The truth was nasty. It was, it was terrifying to look at this Grand Canyon that separates your worlds. A Grand Canyon, and you have no clue in the world how you can possibly get a bridge from here to there. You know, you're aliens to each other. Um, and the, we unleashed 16 years of resentment because Though we never dealt with it, uh, as time went on, you know, you, 
you feel like the core of who you are isn't understood, isn't appreciated, isn't known. Uh, and, and there's other people who would want to know you who, who appreciate that, but, but in your marriage it's not. And that's how she felt. So we unleashed this Pandora's box of resentment, and it was truthful, <laughs> but, but very, very ugly. But see, praise God, in all things, God's working for the better. In all things, however terrifying, however scary, however ugly. Uh, God didn't cause this. God would never cause this kind of dysfunction. That was on us. In fact, as I look back on it, I, I think it was more on me than on Shelley. Uh, I made the decision to hide rather than to confront. I made the decision to follow a path of, of fear rather than a path of courage. I, I made a, a decision to avoid conflict rather than to confront conflict. I made the decision to fall into an old childhood pattern rather than, than create a new pattern as an adult follower of Jesus. That's on me, not God. But now that I did that, God's going to dive into it. There is not, there's no mistake you're going to make, no sin you're going to commit, no wrong you're going to do that God won't dive into. And I, 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 I'm sure God was involved in our life all the while trying to move us to be open to one another, but only after 16 years were we in a place where we were, we were ready to, to face this, where we couldn't deny it. And we were in a position where we could get broken enough to begin to lean on him to do what we could never do on our own. And that is to bring some good out of this. To, first of all, heal the marriage and to bring some good out of it. And the good he's brought out of it is just mind-bogglingly beautiful. So beautiful you think that he must have caused it uh, to bring this about. It's just ingenious. Uh, Shelly and I, through this process, I mean, we, we, we learned. One thing is that uh, you, can, you can learn to understand an alien. You can. If two people are willing and able to suspend their maps, their own maps, to enter into the alien foreign map of the other person. It's not easy. It's not easy. But if you're willing to suspend your own and just step into that and live there a while, um, and they're willing to share it, you can, learn to, 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 you can learn to bridge the Grand Canyon. In fact, you can learn to bring that canyon closer and closer and closer together. It is possible, praise God. Uh, Shelly and I, in the process of working on this, finding ways to get into each other's world, we, we, we uh, uh, learned a depth of commitment we otherwise wouldn't have known. You know, it, it says that Jesus learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And sometimes we've got, in fact, often we've got to suffer to learn what commitment, what obedience really is. And in the process of going through this, I mean, it was only our commitment that kept us in the game here. It, it, we took a vow before God and other people, and so we stayed in the game. But uh, through this, it's made us, it's shaped our character to become more faithful, not only to each other, but, but to God and to other people. We learned what commitment really was. Uh, and and it, it shaped our personalities in, in that direction. So I learned the supreme, the supreme value of truth and honesty. Speaking the truth, however nasty it is, however terrible, however scary, you've got to speak the truth. Um, the, the relationship is only as authentic as you are truth-speaking. And if, if, if you don't speak the truth, then the little mountain that you need to climb uh, will turn, the little hill that you need to climb will turn into a mountain over time. And then when you confront that mountain, the only way to get on the other side is to name it and to confront it and to hold hands and burrow through it. Um, but it comes through honesty and truth speaking. Shelly and I learned through this whole thing, the hell we went through, we learned a depth of love I never dreamed would be possible. It, it, it's, it, we just, it, it blows me away. Um, in some ways, the very effort is, is it binds you together. You know, it, it's like, uh, you're, you're aliens to each other. Maybe you have nothing in common, but you have this in common. You're sharing the misery, and you both need to find a way out, you know? And it, it endears you, and maybe the other person will never, it won't be easy for them to understand you um, because you're so different from them, but you see the effort, and the effort is endearing, and it creates this bond of love. And then out of that depth of love that we discovered came a, a, a wonderful team, 
the thing that used to divide us, now, now we, we team up with. It, you know, it, it, it's, it's brilliant, really. I can see why God brought us together. You take an egghead who doesn't have a practical bone in his body. Take a lady who's all practical, doesn't have any egghead stuff in her. You put them together, and you've got a really good balanced combination there. Uh, I, I, don't know, I don't know what I'd do without her. I would be so lost without her. I mean, I'd be like I was before I married her. You're talking about a guy who could not relate to the, the real world. I wore different shoes, didn't even notice it. I, I would wear plaids and stripes together. I, I was environmentally out of touch, you know? I didn't even see people the way people laughed at me. So uh, I, I was weird. Now I'm not weird. I'm totally normal. Uh, <laughs> Shelly has normalized me. I'm normal. Uh, it wasn't that funny. <laughs> Compared to what I was. No, but, you know, so Shelly really, you know, does all the scheduling and, and, and keeps me on task, and, and I, I'd be lost without her. But see, that's the wisdom of God, the beauty of God. What the enemy used to divide us, God brings together and it makes for a, for a beautiful team. And then finally, God's used this testimony uh, to further his kingdom in, in other people's marriages. I've received a, a number of, of testimonies of people who, when they hear about how different we were and yet found a way to work with God to bring good out of it and heal it, uh, they were on the brink of divorce, on the brink of calling it quits because they could not find a way to bridge and, and it gave them motivation to stay in the game. And I've had testimonies of, of marriages that have been saved by that. That also is part of the good that God brings out of things. See, folks, if we'll cooperate with him, which always involves a submitting of yourself, a breaking of yourself, a dying to yourself, but if we'll cooperate with him, whether it's a difficult person or a difficult marriage or a past group, he, he, when, I, when I look back on what I did, it was so stupid. It was so stupid and so cowardly. It really was. But see, when you, when you submit to God, when you work with God, he'll turn your stupid into something smart. He makes smart out of stupid. Uh, he, he, he turns it into a blessing. He's able to take your failure and make it into an aid to, to a success. He'll take your ashes of your burned up life and turn it into a, to a, a golden crown, praise God. He's able, he's, he's that smart. He'll take your very worst screw-ups, your worst screw-ups, your worst decisions, and make it into a badge of honor. And all your mistakes become qualifications for ministry if you cooperate with him. All that was negative becomes a gain. And, and, and it would seem like a total loss, but that can begin to feel like a gift to you. Because he uses it. It's nasty material. Uh, but, but in the hands of the master artists, the worst stuff, the, the, the sinful stuff, the evil stuff, the stuff done to us, the stuff done by us, the difficult people, the, the failed marriages, all of that becomes material by which the master artist can carve something beautiful out of our life and through our life. Praise God. His wisdom is, um, yes, he, praise God. He, he's a glorious God. He, his wisdom is just mind-boggling. He doesn't cause that stuff. He would never cause that stuff. He hates that stuff, but he can use that stuff because he's brilliant if we cooperate with him. What's your circumstance? What's God trying to teach you now? He's always at work. He's always at work. Uh, what's the trying circumstance? The difficult person? The past screw-up? The shame? See, the devil wants to jump on you and pound on you and uh, shame you and cause you to live in regret and hide that stuff. But see, what the enemy intends for evil, God intends for good. Submit it to him. Yield to him. How is God working, and how can you get on board? Praise God.